0: Good morning, Sanctuary. Uh, my name is Edrin, one of the pastors here, and I am really grateful uh, to have this opportunity to be with you this morning, uh, to share uh, in this series that we are in um, called Journeys, Journey to the Cross. Journey to the Cross. I want to take a moment and pray before we jump into the Word. Um, we're going to be coming from John 12 today, taking a look at an event in the life of Jesus um, there as he made his way back to Jerusalem um, from John 12, and so we want to just pray together as we jump into today's message. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that we get to be together, that we have this opportunity, this open invitation from you to come together as the people of God in worship. Lord, we come from many different places, many different backgrounds, and our weeks have been um, an assortment of experiences, but for whatever reason you have brought all of us here together today We ask, God, that you would now speak to us clearly as only you can. God, take this one message and divide it into a few hundred ways so that each and every person in this room and every person who will hear this message through our podcast would know that you know them, love them, and are speaking to them through this word. God, help us, whether we are young in the faith, whether we've been walking with you for a long time, whether we sit here full of questions and wondering if any of this is even real, God, meet us where we are and help us to take this next step in our faith. We love you. We honor you with our lives. We give you our very best. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Over the last several weeks, we have been in a series called Journey to the Cross. We have uh, been using... The, the, the lectionary. We, we're not a lectionary preaching church per se, but we've been using the lectionary with some assigned passages each week as we've been walking through the New Testament, observing key moments in the life of Jesus's ministry. Um, this is a really cool opportunity for us to be preaching from the lectionary because it allows us to be preaching on the same text each week that millions of other Christians around the world are also hearing. This is a reminder for us that we are a part of something much bigger than just North Minneapolis. We love North Minneapolis. We are called to North Minneapolis. We reside in North Minneapolis, but there is a much bigger church out there. And through the lectionary preaching, we get to connect with brothers and sisters around the globe as we journey towards the cross. And Today, we get to wrestle with the cross, this, this critical, most important aspect of our faith. We, we get to remember today and in the weeks to come the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friends, there are many important things about our faith, but everything that we believe centers on the belief, the central belief, that Jesus, the only Son of God, came and dwelt on earth in bodily form, was crucified, he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That's the essence of our faith. And everything that we believe hinges on that. And so we will be considering together today and in the weeks to come, as we move into Holy Week, what it is for us to understand the journey to the cross. This is fundamental teaching. And so I want to encourage you to commit to being here each Sunday and in our special service next Friday evening on Good Friday. I also want to encourage you to invite friends and neighbors to come and be a part of this. Yes, I am inviting you to invite your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, anyone who you feel might grow and be transformed by hearing the message of the life of Jesus. And so we'll meet together next Sunday for two services on Palm Sunday. We will meet on a special service on Good Friday, where we will join and worship with other covenant churches from around the Twin Cities region. And then we will meet for three services on Easter Sunday. So you get three chances to wear your Easter suit. We'll meet at 9, at 10.30... And at 12, and if you don't know what an Easter suit is, ask your neighbor. They'll, they'll tell you, you got to try it if you haven't tried it. We'll have 60-minute services those days. So we will condense the service down to an hour on Easter Sunday so that we might work in three services that day and accommodate what we hope to be uh, larger crowds on that day. And so as we continue in this series of Journey to the Cross today, we want to look together at the gospel according to John, where we get to see a very significant occurrence in the life of Jesus. Now, usually at this point in the message, I would take about 10 to 15 minutes to try and give an overview of an entire book and help us to see what John has covered in this book from chapters one up through chapter 11. But instead of doing that today, I thought I would save my wonderful voice, Um, and I came across a cool resource from the Bible Project that does a really creative, clear job of explaining what the Gospel of John is about. And so we're going to take a look at that video together as we get started and head towards John 12.
1: The Gospel According to John.
0: It is one of the earliest accounts of
1: Jesus' life and we learn at the end of the book that it comes from one of Jesus' closest followers called the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now He appears many times in the story itself and there is some debate about whether it is John the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, the book embodies his eyewitness testimony and it has been brilliantly designed with a clear purpose that he states near the end. John says, the story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing you may have life in his name. John believes that the Jesus you read about in this book is alive and real and that he can change your life forever. The book's design is really cool. Its first half opens with an introductory poem and a short story that's followed by then a big block of stories about Jesus performing miraculous signs that generate increasing controversy. And it all culminates in his greatest sign, the raising of Lazarus, which creates the greatest controversy as Israel's leaders decide to kill Jesus. And that launches into the book's second half. These chapters focus on Jesus' final night and last words to his disciples, which are followed by his arrest, trial, death, and resurrection. The book concludes with an epilogue. In this video, we're just going to focus on the first half. So the book opens with a two-part introduction. First, a poem that begins in the beginning was the Word, an obvious allusion to Genesis 1, when God created everything with his Word. Now, a person's words, they're distinct from that person, but they're also the embodiment of that person's mind and will. And so John says that God's Word was with God, that is distinct, and yet the word was God, that is divine. And as we ponder this claim, we hear later in the poem that this divine word became human in Jesus. Then John goes on to draw from the stories of Exodus, saying that Jesus was God's tabernacle in our midst. The glorious divine presence that hovered over the Ark of the Covenant became a human in Jesus. Which leads to his last claim, that the one true God of Israel consists of God the Father and the Son who has become human to reveal the Father to us. Now as we consider these mind-bending claims, we then start to hear a story about how John the Baptist first met Jesus and then led other people to meet him and become his disciples. And one by one, as people encounter Jesus, they say out loud who they think he is. And in this one chapter, Jesus is given seven titles. Now these titles prepare us for John's love of sevens in designing the book, but altogether they also make a claim that this fully human Jesus from Nazareth is the messianic king, he's the teacher of Israel, and he's the son of God who will die for the sins of the world. Now, that's a big claim to make about someone, and John will now go on to support it through the stories in chapters 2 through 12. They all have the same basic pattern. Jesus will perform a sign or make a claim about himself, and that will result in misunderstanding or controversy. And so, in the end of each story, people are forced to make a choice about who they think Jesus is. The first section shows Jesus encountering four classic Jewish institutions and in each case Jesus shows that he is the reality to which that institution pointed. So Jesus is at a wedding party and the wine runs out and Jesus then turns these huge jugs of water like 120 gallons total into the best wine ever. And the head waiter says to the groom you've saved the best wine for last. Which is of course true but John also calls this miracle Jesus's first sign. In other words it's a symbol that reveals something about Jesus. So just as Isaiah said that the Messianic Kingdom would be like this huge party with lots of good wine so this first miraculous sign reveals the generosity of Jesus's kingdom. Next, Jesus goes to the Jerusalem temple, the place where heaven and earth were supposed to come together and God would meet with his people. And Jesus asserts his authority over it, running out all the money exchangers, stopping the sacrificial offerings. And when the temple leaders threaten him, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus is claiming that his coming sacrificial death is where heaven and earth will truly meet together. His body that will be killed is the reality to which the temple building points. Then Jesus has this all-night conversation with a rabbi named Nicodemus, who thinks that Jesus is just like him, another rabbi and teacher for Israel. But Jesus says that Israel needs much more than just another teacher with new information. Israel needs a new heart and a new life. Or in his words, no one can experience God's kingdom without being born again. Jesus believes that humans are caught in a web of selfishness and sin that leads to death. But he also knows that God loves this world. And so he's here to offer people a new birth, a new chance at life. From here, Jesus travels north and he ends up at a sacred well in a conversation with a Samaritan, that is a non-Jewish woman. And they start talking about water, which Jesus turns into a metaphor for himself. He says he's here to bring living water that can become a source of eternal life. Now in John, this term refers to a new quality of life, one that's infused with God's eternal love and it's a life that can begin now and last on into the future. After this, John has designed another collection of stories that took place during four Jewish sacred days or feasts. And again, Jesus uses the images related to the feasts to make claims about himself. So Jesus first heals a paralyzed man on the Sabbath, which starts a controversy with the Jewish leaders about working on the day of rest. And Jesus says it's his father who's working on the Sabbath, and so is he. And they catch his meaning, that he was calling God his father, making himself equal with God, and so they want to kill him. The next story takes place during Passover, the feast that retold the Exodus story with the symbolic meal of the lamb and bread and wine. And Jesus miraculously provides food for a crowd of thousands, which results in people asking him for more bread. And then Jesus goes on to claim that he is the true bread, and if they eat him, they will discover eternal life. And this offends many people who stop following him. After this is a block of stories set in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles which retold the story of Israel's wilderness wanderings as God guided them with the pillar of cloud and fire and provided them water in the desert. And Jesus gets up in the temple courts and he shouts, if anyone is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And then later he says, I am the light of the world. He's claiming to be the illuminating presence of God and the life-saving gift of God to his people. And some people believe and follow him, but others are offended and still others try to kill him for these exalted claims. The final feast story is during Hanukkah, which means rededication. It's about how Judah Maccabee cleared the temple of idols and set it apart as holy once more. And Jesus goes into the temple area and says that, He is the one whom God has set apart as the Holy One and that he is the true temple where God's presence dwells. And he also says, I and the Father are one. This makes the Jerusalem leaders so angry, they set in motion a plan to kill Jesus and so he retreats from the city. Now all these conflicts, they culminate in one last miraculous sign. Jesus hears that his dear friend Lazarus is sick, but his family lives near Jerusalem, which is now a death trap for Jesus. Now, Jesus could stay away and he would save his own life, but he loves Lazarus. So once he hears that Lazarus has died, he goes to raise him from the dead and he calls him to life out of his tomb, knowing that it will cost him his own life. And the news of this amazing sign, it spreads quickly, of course. And just as Jesus knew it happened, the Jerusalem leaders hear about it and begin conspiring to murder him. And so he rides into Jerusalem as Israel's king, who's rejected by its leaders. So the first half of John draws to a close with this story about Jesus laying down his life as an act of love for his friend. And this, of course, is also a sign pointing forward to the cross, which we'll explore more in the next video. But for now, that's the first half of the
0: Gospel of John. Really good, right? (laughs) I love technology most of the time. So it would have taken me about 15 minutes to say all of that and probably wouldn't have been as clear. And so I saved us about seven minutes so we can get out of here about seven minutes early today. Uh, The Gospel of John is a Jesus-saturated book. Everywhere we look in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus, the Word become flesh fully God and fully human, the one who professes to be the promised Messiah, the one who would be called the King of Israel, the great rabbi, the great teacher of Israel, the Son of God who would die for the sins of the world. And here in John, we see the same Jesus clearly making his way to the cross. With every single interaction he has, he is moving himself closer and closer to that fateful moment. In John chapter 11, we've already heard of his friend Lazarus becoming sick, dying, and Jesus showing up and raising Lazarus from the dead. And then we heard right there at the end about John 12 and 12, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, proclaiming himself to be king. He is received by cheers of Hosanna as king. And so we have in John chapter 11, Jesus, uh, he, he essentially signs his own death certificate by raising Lazarus from the dead, angering all the Jewish religious leaders. And then in John 12 and 12, he, 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 celebrate, he is celebrated as king, but something essential happens in between those two moments that I believe today will help us to understand who we are called to be in Jesus and how we are called to worship as followers of Jesus. So between the raising of Lazarus and between Palm Sunday, which we will celebrate next week, I want us to look at John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Here's what the word says. Six days before the Passover, the Passover festival, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, An expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, as keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Hmm. The Passover festival is about six days away. And Jesus decides to go again to an area where he is sure to be at risk. There's a dinner given in his honor at a place called Bethany, the city that is home to Lazarus, who's just been raised from the dead, his sisters, Mary and Martha. Many gather on this evening uh, to see Jesus and to see Lazarus. There, There is somewhat of a spectacle because Jesus has raised his friend from the dead. And there... Right in the middle of all the festivities, Mary, Jesus's friend and Lazarus's sister, gets on her feet. She pulls out this jar of of, of perfume and an ointment called nard, and she begins to pour it all over Jesus's feet. Not just a drop here and there not just a little bit so that she can save some for later. Mary takes lavish, generous amounts of this ointment and she pours it all over Jesus. Now in in John's gospel, he makes special effort to talk about her pouring it on Jesus's feet. But Mark and Matthew suggest that she may have even dumped it over his head, that, that she takes this perfume, this ointment, and she dumps it over his head with such extravagance that it begins to run down his face and his beard, and even drops onto his clothes. Friends, this was not common. This was scandalous. This was not dignified. This was countercultural for a single woman to to be taking her hair down at all and to be touching a, a, a single man, a rabbi, despite all the scandal and all the places this could have gone wrong, What I'm hoping we will see today is that this was also worship. This was worship. And that's my first point for us today, that there will always be space for extravagant worship. There will always be space for extravagant worship. Mary helps us to see that in the way that she anoints Jesus. If if worship is about giving our whole selves to God, If worship is our response to who God is and what God has done on our behalf, if worship moves us out of our comfort zones and into the presence of God, the God of all creation, then what Mary displays for us today is an act of extravagant worship. And if this is worship, and if this is true, And I want to encourage us to no longer want to be like Mike. I want to encourage us to be like Mary. When you think about who we are as a church and who you are as an individual, I I want my life and your life and the life of our church to be an offering to God. I I want my life and your life and the life of this church to be pleasing in God's sight. I want my life and your life and the life of our church to be a sweet-smelling savor that changes the environment that we inhabit. You know that a smell can change the atmosphere. A bad smell really changes the atmosphere. But I believe that worship, our life offered as worship, can change the atmosphere wherever we are. And Mary helps us to see that there's always space for extravagant worship. When you are worshiping extravagantly, when your life reflects the goodness of who God is and what God has done for us, many people will call it extra. They will say it then take all that. But I wanna encourage us today supported by our sister Mary, that there will always be space for extravagant worship. But I have to warn you, if your life reflects extravagant worship of God, there will always be objections. There will always be objections. Mary carries out an incredibly meaningful act of worship. She takes everything that she has, and she pours it out on behalf of Jesus, preparing him for what is to come. You would think that in that moment, the other disciples would be excited about what's going on. You would think that traveling with Jesus for three years, they would understand what was happening, and they would celebrate. Perhaps they would even jump in and get involved in worship themselves. But instead, our brother Judas, our beloved brother Judas, Right there in verse 4 of chapter 12, he comes to Mary with what I call fake outrage. Can you say fake outrage? You see, Mary's gift to Jesus wasn't cheap. Judas sees this. He does some math in his head. Three plus four, character three, interest, infliction, um, cost of credit card processing. And somehow he estimates in a moment that what this woman has offered up to Jesus will cost as much as a year's wages. And instead of joining in worship, Judas begins to grumble. Verse 6 tells us what's really going on. He he says, says, "Why, why would you waste all of that? We could have taken those wages and cared for the poor. But verse 6 helps us to see what's really happening. Judas' outrage had nothing to do with the poor at all. He didn't really care about the poor. He spoke up because Judas was stealing the money. Long before he betrayed Jesus in Gethsemane, Judas was skimming money from wherever the disciples were able to bring some in. So here, in the midst of an incredible moment of worship, Judas misses that entire moment because he's blinded by his own greed. Brothers and sisters, if you will set out to follow Jesus, and if you will journey with Jesus wherever he calls us to go, let me warn you that there will be detractors. There will always be those who are eager to share their objections to the things God has called you to do, regardless of whether they're doing anything or not. Those situations require us to become skilled in the practice of what I like to call eating the meat and throwing away the bone. I'm from the country. We know something about eating meat with bones in it. Whether it's chicken or fish or some stuff you might not wanna talk about in public, we know how to eat meat and throw away the bone. And when someone comes to you with with objection to what God has clearly called you to do, you will have to learn how to eat the meat and throw away the bone. Here's what I mean by that. God will use people, even if they come at you inappropriately, to speak truth into your life. And so don't be quick to dismiss what people say to you. Listen to it. Hear it. Take the good out of it but there might be stuff in there that has nothing to do with you. It's actually more about them. In those moments, I need you, brothers and sisters, to become skilled at throwing away those parts. Eat all the meat you can get off that bone, get down to the gristle, and just, just do all the, get all the meat that it has to offer, but don't take the bone. Eating the bone can be dangerous. If you have eaten fish before, you know eating the bone can be dangerous. We are not called to eat the bone. And so as we follow Jesus, as we journey to the cross with Jesus, we are called to eat the meat and throw away the bone. Je- Jesus heard Judas' objection. And Jesus knew that it was not authentic. And so he steps in and he defends Mary's actions. Jesus' objection here, Jesus' response here helps us to see my third and final point. That is that there will always be shining moments. As we follow Jesus, as we trust in Jesus, there will always be shining moments. Here's what I mean. Jesus he gathered at table with friends and Mary had, had, had jumped in and she breaks open an extravagant gift and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet with it. Our, our brother Judas begins to express his fake outrage. Jesus speaks up and defends Mary by declaring that Mary's actions were actually perfect. Here's what Jesus says in, in John chapter 12, verse 7. leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. Jesus speaks up and says to Judas, uh, to to the the grumbling of Judas, this was a holy moment. This was the right gift at just the right time. This was Mary's one shining moment, and Judas would just have to get over his objections. This was a critical moment because Jesus was nearing his death, and this sister takes the most valuable thing that she has and she offers it up in such a way that helps Jesus to prepare for his death and for his burial. Mary understood Jesus better than his disciples did even in that moment. They were constantly with Jesus, but somehow they were too close to Jesus to understand what he had been trying to teach them, but not Mary. Mary knew what this moment meant and she offered up her very best friends. This was Mary's one shining moment. Now, if you are into sports at all, if you, if you even pay a little bit of attention to March Madness, you know what I'm talking about when I say one shining moment. In 1986, maybe the March Madness folks stayed home last night, or stayed home this morning, I don't know. 1986, a man by the name of David Barrett was in a bar in Michigan, watching Larry Bird play on the TV. And he begins to write the lyrics to, to a song on a napkin. And that song went on to be the song that we now know as One Shining Moment. Every year, at the end of the NCAA tournament, after the 64 teams have been dwindled down to one national champion, there's a song that's played at the end of the game called One Shining Moment. That song is about hard work, it's about commitment, But that song is also about players being willing in crucial moments to step into opportunities and use their gifts to meet the challenges that have come up. You see, an interesting thing happens in crucial moments. Sometimes in the big game, superstars don't show up. You've talked about a superstar all season long, and they get to the big game, and they freeze. But often what happens is, in those special moments, a player that nobody really knows. The player who has sat maybe at the end of the bench all year, he steps forward or she steps forward. And in that moment, she steps into this role and she becomes the hero because she recognized this was my one shining moment. Here's what I'm trying to say today, brothers and sisters. You and I may never get on the screen at US Bank Stadium as a part of the NCAA tournament. You and I will never get to anoint the body of Jesus before he goes to the cross. But you and I are called to pay attention and step into our own shining moments. What am I talking about? Shining moments. Shining moments are opportunities where we get to step up and use our gifts that have been given to us by God. Shining moments are those times where we get to bless others and not think so much about ourselves. Shining moments are those times where we get to move the work of the kingdom forward. Shining moments are those obscure moments where we worship God with our own life. See, worship goes far beyond raising hands and singing and even beyond prayer. Our lives are called to be Shining moments. Shining moments that are countercultural, that get in the way of what everybody says should be happening. Shining moments are undignified. When you're really worshiping God, people will say you're doing way too much, you're being extra. These shining moments are scandalous. Some folks would say that they, 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 they disqualify you from serving God. But I say that we, in those shining moments, get to say yes to God with all that we have. And so in this season of Lent, in this season of preparation, in this season of following Jesus to the cross, my prayer for us as a church is that we would over and over and over again say yes to these moments. I don't know what those moments will look like in your life. But I encourage you today to learn the discipline of opening your eyes to what God is doing. Only you know what God has placed inside your heart and given you a passion for. Only you know the times that you've seen opportunity and pretended not to see it. But God is reminding us today, through our sister Mary, she was not a rabbi. She was not a superstar. She probably would have been forgotten altogether except for the fact That an opportunity arose and she stepped into her one shining moment. My prayer is that you would begin to do the same. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are constantly calling us, that you are constantly giving us opportunities to be who you've called us to be, to step out of comfort zones and into areas of impact. And God, I pray today that as we hear the story of our sister Mary, we might in some way be prompted to step forward in new ways. God, what I know for certain is that every single person in this room has been given a gift, has been given passions, desires that would impact the world, and move the mission of the church forward. God, I pray that you would awaken those gifts, those passions, those desires in them in such a way that this community would be different. This church would be different. That this nation would be different when it drastically needs it. And that our world would be different as well. God, God, for those moments when we've seen opportunity, when we've heard you call us to something, and we've turned and walked away, we ask your forgiveness. We thank you for your grace that covers a multitude of sin. You have not condemned us for those moments where we've fallen short. But like a loving Father, you've again brought new opportunities to us. Every single day you bring us new mercies and new opportunities. So God, may we have our eyes open to see where you're at work in the world. And may we run with reckless abandon to join you there. Thank you, Father, that you've loved us with an everlasting love. Hear our prayer today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.